Brothers and sisters, you have in your order of service and bulletin most of the reading. Part of it got left off, but we'll fill that blank when the time comes. Though, even by re-attracting your attention to what the reading was, I know what you're all thinking. Peter and everyone else, you're thinking harvest, you're thinking mission, and you're thinking revelation. Are we not at the wrong end of the Bible? Should we not perhaps be starting with a, a famous promise given to Noah and to humanity shortly after the fall, as long as the earth endures seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease after the fall. A whole series of events and God's promise and commitment to Noah were given after the flood. Never again, says Yahweh, will I curse the ground. And uh, later, and a few verses after that, again comes a blessing. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Harvest talk. A human harvest, actually repeating the, the original one mentioned in Genesis 1 and 28, the blessing of, of filling the earth, God making a, an everlasting covenant and having a sign of that in the sky and a reminder of his commitment to all life. Well, now, here's a thing for a Sunday focused on harvest and focused on mission. If seed time or harvest, if day or night won't cease, until the earth endures. And if God no longer curses the ground, but tells Noah and humanity to fill the earth, which is currently about seven billion of us and counting, then what are we to make of the agricultural and economic challenges of feeding us all, given the problems faced by our farmers even here? Or what are we to do about the missional challenges facing the Church of Christ? as God works to bring all nations into his kingdom. While, as Peter has himself briefly mentioned, our part of that task in PCI is falling to an aging and a shrinking church with plenty of problems. Well, you'll be delighted to know that I'm going to leave food security to the experts because I wouldn't know what to say. As for harvest and mission, well, Peter, brothers and sisters, I just want to explain the move I'm making by attracting your attention to Revelation. Whatever else you know about the book, let me focus in on just one thing. The move that John himself makes. And the move that we make with him this morning is to ask ourselves, what does harvest and what does mission look like from God's perspective? And the book of Revelation was written for worship, for performance in worship, and it took the worshiping people in Ephesus and Laodicea and the five churches in between and whoever else received it to heaven in worship. Now, you didn't bat an eyelid at that because that's Fitzroy every Sunday morning. Well, it could be you going to heaven or it could be bringing heaven to you. It really doesn't matter which way around you play that. But that's what worship is. We go through the word and our praise and our prayer to where God is. And we see things from his perspective. So, Peter, for tomorrow 
and you've already been in the job since early August, and all those tomorrows. And brothers and sisters, for tomorrow, whatever tomorrow brings for you, on the aftermath of the day of harvest celebration and of mission with the special focus of a new support officer whose role has been briefly set out for us and all that that's going to mean for Peter. What will inspire you? What will give you vision for what you do? Not me, but perhaps revelation. And so what I'm going to try and do, and we'll have to do it very quickly, given the time, is get a flavor of just what's going on here. An apocalypse or a revelation works like this. The seer goes to where God is, and the book is full of I saw and I heard. And just when we get to the beginning of chapter 21, with a lot of I saws and a lot of I heards already gone, we're reaching the climax. We're reaching the closing sequence of the service of worship. And we're seeing harvest and we're seeing mission, much as I think Jesus maybe meant when he said to his disciples, lift your eyes and look as far as the horizon, the horizon of what God is doing. So let's do that a little. You've noticed at the beginning of the reading that John sees a new heaven and a new earth. And these opening verses are a kind of an overture to three great themes. Like any overture, it presents the themes and then they get developed later musically. New creation, new Jerusalem, new covenant. The whole piece is about, verse 5, God making everything new. A a new heaven and, and a new earth. For this, John is reusing one of the motifs or melodies from one of his favorite composers. That's Isaiah. Isaiah 65 and 17, for example. See, says Yahweh, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And John then adds his variations to Isaiah's well-known tune. Just before where we started reading, John sees the old earth and heavens flee away from the presence of God as judgment falls. And then a couple of sentences later, verse 1 of 21, he repeats the motif. The old earth is gone, and so is the sea. Living on an island as we do, imagine that if you can. No sea. But what that means is no more chaos, no more evil with which the sea is associated. And it all sums up the chapter previous, chapter 21, when everything that marred and everything that scarred the old earth and the old heaven is gone. Evil silenced for good and all. No sea to see in the new heaven and new earth. So what is there to see or hear? Well, verse 2 says, a city, or is it a bride? A bride city. The last hallelujah sang of a bride made ready in linen bright and clean. The hallelujah that inspired Handel towards the end of his Messiah. Here she is again, the wife of the lamb. And we hear more of her in verse 9 and following, which we didn't read. Actually, that particular tune was introduced way back at the beginning of Revelation in those seven messages that everyone knows and that every minister preaches on sooner or later. In the oracle to ancient Philadelphia, a promise And that's the one word to take away today, a promise. Peter, you've made a whole stack of promises. 
But what I'm thinking of is the promise that like a seed falls in the ground and like a seed dies and is hidden and grows and develops. The promises that are God's promises, like those given to Noah, some of the first promises in Scripture, but all the way through to the promises that here are being fulfilled, the promise that flourishes and blossoms and produces fruit for harvest and mission. Says Christ to the church in Philadelphia, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You'll never go out of it. I'll write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That's back in chapter 3. The new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven. So in the first few minutes of worship in Ephesus or Laodicea or the other churches, everybody knows that Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, will descend. And now is the moment towards the climax. Brothers and sisters, Peter, Osa, mum and dad, all of God's promises, God delivers on. You know that from your own lives, don't you? Like I do from mine. Isn't that harvest? In a nutshell, a hidden but a promising seed in fertile ground, it grows, there's a sprout, and one day there's a great harvest to bring in. God's word bursting with potential for growth sown in the rich loam of human lives and growing till the harvest comes. From God's word to his people Israel, from Christ's word to his church, the fruit of many seeds of many promises. That's what produces a bumper harvest here in Fitzroy, there in Nepal, Limerick, Garnerville, and wherever else, peace projects and a PhD Peter might have taken you, and on all the paths that you and I will tread tomorrow. And here's where the brass and the percussion really come into their own for John's music. I heard a loud voice, he says in verse 3. Do you see that? Throughout Revelation, he's been hearing and seeing. When he says, I hear, we listen up. When he says, I see, we keep our eyes peeled. Well, what does he hear here? God's dwelling place is now among the people, thunders the voice from the very throne of God. God's Dwelling place is now among the people. So that's what a descending heavenly city means. God coming to dwell with his people. Christ had told Philadelphia back in chapter 3 that he had the key of David. Well, who else would have the key to Jerusalem, royal David's city? But living in cities, well, that has a checkered history, doesn't it? God gives humanity a paradise garden and humans respond by building Babel. A kind of a we'll show you God gesture. And... The last irony is with God. As he comes to stay, what happens? Does he come walking again in Eden in the cool of the day? Uh Uh-uh. He sends down a descending city, the idea of humanity, and this has become the place. And all the way through Scripture, that God coming to stay is an old refrain, so old we don't really know who first composed it. The promises, though, are sown. I will place my dwelling in your midst. I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. That's Leviticus. Or Ezekiel, he picks up the theme and plays it. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then Isaiah, well, Isaiah. He scores it for full orchestra and turns it into one massive major chord. Emmanuel, God with us. 
So, verse 4, no more mourning or crying. God's in town for the wedding of his son, the lamb, to his bride, the church. No more death on these city streets. Now the living God has come to take up residence. He will swallow up death forever, exactly as Isaiah had predicted. And the rest of verses 1 to 8, we read just the beginning of them, keeps building this picture of God making everything new. God, the Alpha and Omega, verse 6. God, the planter and harvester. God, the creator and great restorer. And the next section, which we didn't read, and that's part of your homework after the final whistle, from 21.9 to 21.27, we'll pick up the last bit of it, just expands on what this new Jerusalem, this bride of the Lamb, is to be. We'll not have space or time now to listen, but you can turn the music up and close your eyes later. The first few bars are about the whole city. The next few measures actually measure the city close up. And then where we picked up the reading in verse 22, the theme is about those who live there. As well as Isaiah, at the very least, John seems also to have in mind the closing part of Ezekiel. Because in those final chapters of Ezekiel, the new temple is key. And we're expecting, are we not, a new temple at the center of New Jerusalem as it descends. But this Jerusalem, says John in his vision, has no temple. No temple. So times change. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal, and I hesitate to say this, is just suppose that your beautifully enhanced church building, which I began to discover this morning, here in Fitzroy, recently completed, were to disappear and leave a big hole in the South Belfast cityscape, paid off or not. Would that not be a big deal for you? And yet John says he saw no temple, as far as I can see, because the harvest isn't about the barn. And mission isn't about beautiful buildings, but about beautiful, precious people who might use them. Meeting God and the Lamb is what matters, not any meeting house. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days, Jesus had said, standing before the magnificent second temple in Jerusalem. And he, says John, the apostle, was talking of his body. So there's glory and there's splendor in the air as this book of Revelation comes to its great climax. Back in chapter 15, angels before God's throne had grabbed their harps and sung of how all nations will come and worship before you. And here we see them as you look at the closing part of the reading printed there. The nations come streaming in with all their wealth and their tribute and their honor through ever open gates. Isaiah again. Think of the the calling of the servant, Isaiah's servant, to be a light to the Gentiles, to take Yahweh's salvation to the ends of the earth, to make his justice a light to the nations. Mission accomplished. Divine light used to illuminate the temple, and now that light comes from the Lamb as he bathes the city's inhabitants in its light. Sin abolished, death defeated, evil over. There can't be any impurity left. The last verse printed there for you. Purity was one of those things that the prophet's songs of Zion always had. Put on your garments of splendor, Zion, says Isaiah. 
So nothing shameful, nothing untruthful in New Jerusalem. Every last inhabitant is the Lamb's own, their names indelibly inscribed in his book of life. Another harvested promise. It was made to victors in one of those churches back in chapter 3, the church in Sardis. Now that brings us finally to verses 1 to 5 of chapter 22. Let me just read them for you again. And just listen for the things that John sees. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Picture it if you can. Some signs there of Eden restored, but in no way like the original Eden at the same time. First of all, the river. The great river Euphrates is mentioned twice already in the book of Revelation, and and it cut ancient Babylon in half, right up the middle. So probably that's part of the picture. It was one of those four tributaries of the river of Eden mentioned back in Genesis 2. The river provides the water of life which might set you thinking about Jesus in John 7 at the great pilgrim feast of booths or Sukkot, harvest in gathering in Jerusalem, where he stands up and he promises rivers of living water to the thirsty who come to him. Another sign from Eden is the tree of life. Of course, you spotted it. Access to it has been denied by a flaming sword since the primeval events, Genesis 3.24, ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But back at the beginning of Revelation, to the very first church, renewed access to the tree of life is promised. So you can see them kind of sitting on the edge of their, probably not pew, whatever they sat on, or maybe they stood around in the first church. Imagine now, if you can, this tree yielding its fruit every month with leaves that heal the nations. The least we can say is that's some harvest. John again is reaping words that have already been sown. Ezekiel 47 speaks of fruit-bearing, life-giving, healing trees on the banks of the river flowing from the temple where Jesus stood up in John 7. And Zechariah, he sees living water flow out from Jerusalem to irrigate the Dead Sea on the one hand and the Mediterranean on the other. And a third echo of Eden, the curse. The very ground was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. So soil meant toil and sweat and tears. And it still does, even with all the mechanization and all of the the technology and all of the knowledge we now have. But here, the ancient curse is lifted. Eternal life with God is to be enjoyed. What does life with God involve? Does it start when you die? Does it start when you first know Jesus? Does it start the minute the service of worship starts? 
This is eternal life, says Jesus, John 17, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The music of mission, God's mission, as seen from his perspective. God sending his son, Jesus, so that by knowing his son, people will know God. So life with God in his garden city means seeing God face to face. Can you get your head around that? I I can't. But John is harvesting promises again from the psalmist. The upright will see his face. From Jesus, the pure in heart will see God. From Paul, one day, Corinthians, we will see face to face. And there's more. His name, God and the Lamb's name, on his servants' foreheads. Christ had promised the church in Philadelphia back in chapter 3 he would write God's name on them if they stayed true to his name. And wearers of his name have already been glimpsed in chapter 14. Again, Jesus in John 17 helps us understand. He asks the Father in that great prayer to protect those who belong to him in the power of your name, that name you have given me. Those who are Christ's bear his name. Knowing Christ, they know God. Taking Yahweh's name by sharing Christ's. And to crown it all, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. Every tribe and language and people and nation, says Revelation, seven times till we get the message, will contribute a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And that reign fulfills the last and the largest promise in Revelation 2 and 3. We tend not to see it because we're fixated with Christ standing at the door and knocking, which is in that same passage. But the promise to Laodicea is to sit with Christ on his throne. And even that fabulous promise probably goes back to Genesis since Genesis 1 tells us that humanity was created by God to rule. I'm done. So shortly will be worship. But when we leave the presence of God to whom we go in spirit and who comes to us in spirit in worship, it's my hope that Peter, tomorrow at nine, brothers and sisters, tomorrow at nine, whatever it is that you're doing, might the music of Revelation, might vision of God reaping the fruit of the word he has sown, might God's mission, God's harvest in the church and beyond in the world, might that be yours tomorrow? Because the problem is that after every sermon, there's work to do. So I'm hoping that when you do yours, you might hum Revelation's tune. Amen.